If you enjoyed these podcasts, check out Byron Reese's newest book. It's about artificial intelligence and covers all the topics addressed on Voices in AI. It's called The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity, and it's available now wherever fine books are sold. This is Voices in AI, brought to you by Giggle. I'm Byron Reese. Today, my guest is Steve Durbin. He is the managing director of the ISF, the Information Security Forum. His main areas of focus include strategy, information technology, cybersecurity, and the emerging security threat landscape, both across the corporate and personal environment. He um, runs his company. He's the managing director, and which he has been doing for, it seems like, almost a decade. Welcome to the show, Steve. Nice to be here, Brian. Thanks for, uh, for having me. So I always like to I like to get our bearings real quickly and just I normally ask what artificial intelligence is, but I'm going to give you a different kind of getting our bearings. It seems that through the history of code makers and code breakers, it's been unclear who has the upper hand, and maybe it goes back and forth. Right now, when you look at the security landscape of the technologies out there, is it easier to be white hat or black hat? I think that I'd have to say it's easier to be black hat. Um, why do I say that? I, I think that if we look at all of the technology that's available, then we have to bear in mind that for every white hat, there are probably at least two black hats that are making use of that very same technology. And they don't have some of the challenges that the white hats have. So they're not as restricted in things like corporate governance, in things like budgets, in things like where they might uh, um, practice and, and, and apply their trade. So that, that's why really I'm, I'm saying that uh, for the time being anyway, the, the black hats probably have the, uh, the upper hand. That's a pretty provocative statement to say there are twice as many people trying to break security as trying to enforce it. What I assume that's a gut feeling, but kind of break that open a little bit. Like where are all these bad guys? Yeah, I think the, the major shift, Byron, has come about with uh, crime as a service. So if you roll it back you know, into the, the, the good old bad days of probably only about three to five years ago, then you needed to have a certain amount of skill to be a black hat, to be a bad guy. Crime as a service then became very much more readily available, particularly on the, uh, on the dark web. And now you don't need to have some of that skill. So you can, for instance, purchase denial of service attacks. They do come with 24-hour support. They do come with you know, a hotline. Provided you pay your bill, then you can pretty much try these things out. And so one of the concerns, I think, for everybody is that it isn't just the professional hacker, the professional black hat. We've also got now some, some amateurs that are applying their trade and, uh, and really starting to make use of some of these things. So, so that's really why I'm saying that um, the, the number of, of the bad guys outweighs the good. Um, the other reason, of course, is that we know that there is a skill shortage in terms of the, uh, the good guys trying to find the right level of skill set, the right level of capability and attract them to your organization is proving to be a, a very difficult challenge to overcome. So geographically, I, I'm, I'm really intrigued by this. There are these companies I can just like order up a denial of service attack. And from the way you describe it, they have better tech support than some of the companies I call to try to get uh, try to get support. Are they located? Uh, are they concentrated geographically, or are they dispersed throughout the world? 
Well, one of the challenges for law enforcement, of course, is how do you find where these people are? And uh, the Internet has, has provided a means of, of bouncing traffic uh, across multiple servers, across multiple geographies that make it exceptionally difficult for law enforcement to actually catch, uh, catch these people. Um, and, and therein lies one of the challenges. So even if you can track back, for instance, a crime that perhaps has been committed in, let's say, Denmark, and you know that the perpetrator is sitting in the Ukraine, um, being able to extradite that individual or actually nail them down is, is, is very, very difficult. And, and that's just one of, the, uh, one of the challenges. So this really goes back to the point that I was making about you know, technology, whilst um, advancing, whilst providing a lot of opportunities on, for, for the good guys, is also being used to the same extent by, by the bad guys. When you read about these breaches where, you know, 50 million people's credentials were stolen and 100 million credit cards and 60 million social security numbers and these staggering numbers, why isn't the world awash in more identity theft than it seemingly is? Like, we know credit cards still work, right? Like, uh, the... My credit card fees when I process a credit card are two and a quarter percent. Uh, I have credit cards that give me 2% cash back. So somehow my credit card company is living off half a point, which tells me there either is not enough fraud or they're not bearing the cost of it. So all of these numbers are stolen, but why don't we have this apocalypse of uh, why doesn't that crash the financial system, or at least the retail financial system? Yeah, I, I think that's a really good question. And, and I think the answer to that is that we should never underestimate the amount of investment, the amount of skill that the financial services organizations in particular have deployed in terms of, you know, monitoring what is happening in terms of credit card transactions, being able to uh, use systems to uh, to intelligently uh, determine whether it's you or whether it's me or whether it's a third party that is using uh, the credit card. And so stop some of these things right before they incur significant losses. Um, I think one of the other things that uh, is going on in this space, of course, is encryption. Uh, that is, is, is making life still difficult for, uh, for people who have stolen the information to, to unencrypt unless they happen to have got the keys. Uh, in most cases, that isn't happening. So there are some uh, you know, checks and balances in there that, that uh, mean that even though we're seeing a lot of um, loss of, of that kind of really valuable information, it, it isn't being used uh, at a fairly exponential rate to, to, to bankrupt organizations. Um, and, and so I think that uh, we have to give a little bit of credit to, to the way in which financial services organizations in, in particular, because they've been the targets for, for quite some while now, because let's face it, that's where the money is, have been you know, implementing systems in terms of fraud detection um, in particular, and client notification and, uh, and so on, and, and indeed collaboration amongst themselves to share uh, details of, of uh, um, attacks and so on. We need to give them a little bit more credit in that space, I think. So if I'm a black hat person, uh, just a lone person, but I'm very talented and I live in a country where, you know, it would be hard to get at me. What is the lowest hanging fruit as like, what is the easiest thing to do to, to try to make money? Is it phishing scams? Is it, is it, trying to just get a couple of people's information and use it or like where where do you see the most kind of activity occurring right now i think the sort of individual that you're talking about is that um i, I would describe as the start out 
black hat. So what they're really trying to do is is to see whether or not they can um, run a number of phishing scams. Those are relatively easy to do. They're relatively cost effective in terms of uh, the amount of, of money that is required to purchase some of those personal details. It's, it's you know small number of dollars. We're not talking uh, massive amounts at all. Um, and if you, you send out enough of these, you will get some responses that will more than adequately cover your costs. So that, that for me is the sort of the start out guy. The, the bigger area of concern, and this is really highlighted by people like uh, Interpol, for instance, um, in their sort of upcoming threat uh, re report that's recently out, is, is around the way in which ransomware is becoming very much more uh, of a targeting tool. So looking at how you can um, really go after specific individuals or specific organizations with sophisticated ransomware, which, which uh, uh, certainly law enforcement is, is concerned about. Um, to do that, of course, you need to be very much more sophisticated from a black hat point of view. We're not talking about the, uh, the rank amateur who's just starting out here. We are talking about people who've been doing it for quite some while. Um, and if we go on from there, then we move into the nation state uh, environment as well, where you have some very highly sophisticated uh, cyber criminals who, who are uh, looking to do everything from steel research and development to uh, um, potentially attack critical infrastructure. I certainly want to come there because that's that's a, a pretty exciting thing. But before we get there, do we hear? So let's talk about ransomware for a minute. Uh, yes. I remember it wasn't long ago a, a, a group of hospitals were hit under the theory that they kind of had to pay, right? Like quickly, yeah. because lives yeah. were at threat. Do you? What percentage of things like that does the general public hear about, or is the incentive among people who have to pay? generally speaking, to keep it very quiet, pay and, and not mention it? Yeah, I think there is always going to be an incentive, uh, particularly if, if you know, the information is, is pretty critical for you to be tempted to pay, particularly if the amount that's being asked for uh, isn't debilitating from, from an organizational standpoint. Um, there are very few organizations out there that um, – can really afford the disruption of, of a full-blown ransomware attack and not respond to it in some way, shape, or form. I mean, there are a number that, that were hit by the NotPetya, for instance, um, who, who did just replace you know, entire infrastructure. If you think about that for a, for a large multinational, the amount of time, resource, money that's required to do all of that, very few organizations can do that. Um, and you do have, particularly if we look at, say, the healthcare space, hospitals, organizations for, for which you know the primary business is patient care it's about looking after you and i when when we need it the most and so technology is a means of facilitating that and so i think that there is always going to be a temptation if the, if the price is right to uh, to pay and, uh, and and move on but you know i come down on the on the same side as uh, as law enforcement on that one that that probably isn't the way to go even though tempting because what you're doing is you're sending a signal that says you know we do pay we do reward, if you like, blackmail of, of this nature. Very hard, though, if all of your systems are on the floor and you've got a hospital full of people and you have to revert to pen and paper. You know, how long are you going to be able to do that? How long is that going to be sustainable for your, for your business? Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's an easy thing to, uh, uh, to, to answer or to recommend, but obviously, you know, you have to be aware that if you do pay once, there is a good chance that uh, the people may come back and ask for more to, at a later point in time. Um, and, and that's just something you need to be aware of. 
You know, you mentioned encryption was still strong, that encrypted um, encrypted messages are still hard to break. And, and I guess that works in reverse. When ransomware essentially encrypts somebody's systems, uh, that's really hard. Well, you know, you say, well, don't pay, but you, you, you don't say, I'm assuming, don't pay. We have a way for you to get out from under it without paying. Is that correct? I think in some cases there may be a way out from under it without paying. In the majority, that is not um, the way to go. So you are having to effectively write off uh, your current data set. And, and this really leads to the importance of planning for that day. We talk a lot at the, at the ISF about planning for, for cyber resilience. It isn't just about hoping for the best. It's about you know assuming that one day something is going to happen. You're going to be breached. You're going to be uh, attacked with a, with a ransomware attack, whatever it might be. And you're going to have to rely on the backup plan. And so you do have to make sure that it is comprehensive. You do have to make sure that you have rehearsed it. And you do hope that the day will never come. But the loss of data, if you are regularly backing up and you're keeping it separate and you're, and you're following you know, a good approach to, to cybersecurity hygiene, means that you can get your business back up and running, albeit you will have lost you know, a significant amount of data, but you won't have lost everything. So you will be able to recover to a certain extent. So the importance, as I say, of, of making sure that you've got the right processes and policies and procedures in place really can't be underestimated. So in the U.S. at least, are companies required to disclose when they're breached or do they do that uh, as good public relations or do they do it at all? There has been um, a bit of a change in, in the U.S. If I was talking to you probably, I don't know, five years ago, maybe a little bit more, uh, then I was hearing certainly from um, legal firms that were advising clients who had been breached uh, that you know the clients were not taking the advice. They weren't notifying, even though they knew that they had to in certain states. I think that the world has moved on. We now have um, a much more uh, stringent set of uh, regulations in in certain areas. You mentioned healthcare uh, earlier. Uh, you know that, that that is certainly there. If we look at uh, personally identifiable information as it relates to European citizens, for instance, the General Data Protection Regulation that has a global reach. We look at some of the more recent laws that have been passed in, in California, for instance. So I think that the world is, as I say, moving on. I, I do think we will get to a place, rightly or wrongly, where we will have much tighter regulation, where we will be required as organizations to report breaches within reasonable periods of time. Uh, in the European Union, it happens to be 72 hours. Now, we can argue whether that's a good number or a bad number, but it's clear what you have to do. And I think that that is where we're headed generally in terms of uh, breach reporting. And um, why is that? Well, I, I think that uh, there is a gradual growing concern amongst the public, amongst individuals, amongst other organizations in, in the supply chains, for instance, that we need to have this information. We need to know that our data has been compromised or lost so that we can do something about it at the personal level. Simple thing like change passwords. And the sooner you can do that, the better, and, and that's just one of the drivers that are out there. Um, I chatted with a fella, and this has to be 10 years ago, so I'm, I'm sure, or I, perhaps it's outdated, and he, we were talking about uh, DDO, distributed denial of service attacks, 
and his company mitigated against them. When you had one, they uh, got you out from under it. And I said, how do you do that? And he said, well, unfortunately, we break the law. We, we wish we didn't. But we go out and attack all the machines that are attacking the, the server in, in question. And he said, the, the law just isn't up to date enough for that to be something that legally we're allowed to do. But, of course, we're, we're deflecting an attack. So it's kind of all we can do. A, is that still how it's done? And uh, B, would that still be illegal? Hackback. Um, yeah, I, I mean, you, you know, you, you have to have a pretty high degree of sophistication to be able to do that. That That is not something that the majority of organizations can do. Uh, we are seeing a lot of discussion um, and, and sort of saber rattling, if you like, in that particular space from certain governments uh, here in the United States. That is certainly the case in the United Kingdom. It's, uh, it's similar as well. Um, but that's at the government level. At the organizational level, you, you will have to rely on, you know, a third party that has that capability. Um, and I, I think that wherever you happen to be in the world, that there are different views that are taken as to the legality of that. And, and certainly whether the action is viewed as being defensive or, or whether, you, you know, it is something else. It's a very, very complex area. It's not one that you should be going into, I would say, uh, unless you really understand what you're up to. And yes, you would need to have some, uh, some pretty sophisticated expertise on your side in order to do that effectively and make sure that you weren't actually making the matter worse. I asked him, what do you, what do you charge for that? And he said, $100,000 will we'll fix any DDoS. Uh, is that still, and again, this is 10 years ago. So is that still like, like the order of what it costs you to, to defend against that sort of thing? It, it's an impossible question to answer, Byron. All because, right. You know, you, you need to look at the size, the size, the scale, the scope, and uh, fair enough. It, it, you know, so, how long's a piece of string? <laughs> right, right. Fair enough. Somewhere between a foot and a mile. Um, <laughs> so, let me ask. Let's talk about state actors. Um, I was at a, I was at a conference. Uh, when was Stuxnet? Do you remember? Oh, gosh. Uh, that's going back a while ago? now. Yeah, something like that. So I was at a conference right after that happened. And right. I was, and there, there was a person involved, uh, you know, who was talking about it. And and they said, who do you think wrote Stuxnet? And he goes, well, I, I think it's pretty obvious. The United States did. And, and the person said, why do, you, why do you think that? And he said, well, uh, because it took a digital superpower to make that piece of technology. And there's at present, only one digital superpower in the world. I assume 10 years past, that is no longer the case. Is that true? Like, could any number of state actors now do a sophisticated, do, do something like a Stuxnet that, that attacked, attacked physical infrastructure and, you know, vibrated things at their resonant frequency and was able to get it delivered and do all the rest? There are certainly nation states out there that are probably more advanced than others, but I think it would be fair to say that if we look back uh, 10 years and compared that with where we are today, there are more state actors that, that have a, a similar sort of capability. I mean, the Stuxnet thing was, was uh, you know, highly collaborative. It was, it was planned uh, meticulously over a period of time. Um, there's a very interesting book that, that you may have read by David Sanger um, that, that goes into this in, in, in quite some 
some detail. It's called The Perfect Weapon and um, looks at, at some of these sort of cyber attacks that we're just sort of touching on now. Um, and, and uh, you know, it give, gives quite an interesting perspective on, on some of these things. Um, but I think that, that certainly it would be fair to say that a number of nation states have, have improved their capabilities in that particular space. And, uh, you know, we've seen some of those attacks. We've seen North Korea and with the uh, with the Sony attack, for instance. We've seen uh, some attacks are being attributed to the Chinese in terms of what they've been up to uh, with just very recently, you know, putting uh, chips into devices and so on. Um, and of course, we shouldn't forget that uh, that also we have the United States and the UK and, and some of uh, the other European countries that are also pretty active in some of these spaces too. I usually avoid highly top, uh, you know, highly kind of in the moment news things on this show because it has a long life. But the thing you just referenced, the, the chips um, that allegedly the Chinese were placing in hardware. Uh, that's being vehemently denied by Apple and others. Where, where, how do you think that's going to shake out? I think what it does is it raises a really interesting challenge for that really I've, I've been watching for, for a number of years now, and that is how do you ensure integrity of security across your supply chain? Because if we take Apple as an example, okay, so, so the, the famous sort of slogans, you know, designed in California, assembled in a variety of places, actually, from China through to Malaysia and, and, and various other uh, places as well. Now, the Apple supply chain, Tim Cook, spent a, a significant amount of time putting all of that together, trying to ensure that it was optimized and, and so on. But very often, when we look at a, an extended supply chain, it becomes increasingly more difficult the number of different partners that you're involving to ensure complete integrity of security across that space for a couple of reasons. First, security is rarely at the top of the list in terms of the things that you look at. Traditionally, supply chains have been put together in terms of uh, most appropriate cost in terms of the um, production, for instance, capability in terms of uh, production of chips and, uh, and so on. Security doesn't tend to figure highly on that. Now, things are changing, but they're changing very slowly. And so the, the ensuring the integrity of security across an overall supply chain is exceptionally difficult. And this is one example for me of, of, of that. You know, How do we ensure when we do live in the society and, and the world in which we live in today, where we do have a number of different people that we collaborate with in everything that we produce, in everything that we manufacture, how do we ensure that we do have the right levels of security. And frankly, it's an impossible question to answer because each and every organization will need to take a view based on the risk profile that they've decided to adopt and their own internal capability to actually go out and check on this security. And let's face it, that is the only way that you can do it effectively. You cannot ask third parties to provide you with a sensible audit of their security posture because they will try to tell you what it is that you want to hear. So the only way that you can do it is by physically going and checking it yourself. If you think about that and you're a large manufacturer of any product, then you know that it's impossible. So you will focus on those that are most critical to you and that comes down to you assessing your risk profile and that's a job for the board of directors um, to, to determine and obviously for the people within your organization then to go away and implement. So, if you were building a, if you're British, correct? I am. Yes. And if you were building a weapon system um, on behalf of the British government to be deployed, you know, whatever, in in the United Kingdom, would you only 
build it? I mean, is that even a possible thing to secure a, a, a far-flung supply chain? Or would you just build it out of components that were manufactured there and assembled kind of within, within sight and, and oversight? I think when we start moving into that uh, realm, then there are, you know, preferred suppliers that uh, that nation states use that have used for quite some time that are trusted. That doesn't mean to say that they can't be breached. Doesn't mean to say that they won't be attacked in some some way, shape, or form. Um, but there are, you know, a number uh, of them that are on the preferred supplier list that that have been vetted, that are trusted. Uh, and I think that we're seeing some of that in terms of both conventional weapons and, and cyber weapons that are being produced. You know, people are collaborating with trusted partners. And I, I don't think that's any different, actually, from the way that it's always been. With regards to that, one incident we were just discussing um, that's in the news right now, some people have maintained that a chip that size, because it was minuscule, couldn't do all of the things that were claimed. Is that the case, or could you actually hide something that really was a backdoor that would, I mean, it's not microscopic to be sure, but it's so tiny as to almost certainly evade notice? I think I think one of the things we have to bear in mind, there, there are two things to that. The, the first is that, you know, when we look at the size of some of these things, size actually doesn't matter. We, we have been able to compress uh, so much. Um, whether or not uh, the, the information could be compressed at the size that we're talking about, who knows. The second thing, of course, is that you don't necessarily need to store some of these things on, on the device. If you can connect it in some way, shape, or form to the internet, then the world really is your oyster in terms of the way that you can then transfer information. And, and this takes us into that whole area of the internet of things, of course. Um, I was talking to a, a, a very large uh, bank not that long ago who was telling me that they had had a, a particular problem with their printers. Now, they had outsourced or they had allowed their departmental heads to go out and purchase printers because the IT department didn't want to get involved in that. It was only when they were running a pen test, they saw that there was a lot of data that was being sent outside of the bank unauthorized. When they drilled down into it in much more detail, they found that it was coming from the printers. Why? Because the printers are fitted with um, the ability to communicate with the internet, with a standard password. The users hadn't realized that they could switch that feature off or indeed that they could change the, the passwords. And so the printers were just sending that data out of, of, out of the bank. Um, now, th there was no suggestion that this was an attack. There was no suggestion that this was deliberate exfiltration by a third party. It's a pure accident. But the point is that... There are so many different devices that are being created today that we're almost taking for granted that we don't even pause to think, you know, should I be changing a password on my home router, for example, or in this case on a printer to preserve my information, to keep it within my, my four walls. And, and therein lies the problem. So we're surrounded by devices that are constantly looking for connections, that are constantly trying to, to talk to other devices. Um, and so... You know, if you can have something that is relatively small, that is able to then um, talk to other devices, then you, you can exfiltrate quite an amount of information. And unless somebody actually deliberately looks for that, you're not going to pick it up. You know, talking about devices, there's, by last count, 18 billion devices attached to the Internet. And 
I forgot who said that by 2025, it'll be 80 billion. And for the most part, these devices are not upgradable. Uh, you know, they don't, they don't have software that can be patched. Um, I just had this vague sense that that's this enormous looming security risk to have these pieces of hardware that, you know, you rush to market and then uh, are on the internet and cannot be fixed. So that if, if a vulnerability is ever detected, it's kind of like, ha, huh, that's, that's interesting. You know, somebody could turn on every oven in Detroit um, with the push of a button. Is that a legitimate, not the oven example per se, but is 80 billion devices connected to the internet that are, may or may not be able to be upgraded uh, a looming security threat? Yes, it is. And, and I think it is one that certainly uh, a number of people, myself included, have, have been highlighting for, for some years now. Um, the, the, the issue I personally was, uh, was involved with was around smart meters, um, which at, at the time that they were first introduced didn't have security built into them. The response being that that would make the smart meter prohibitively expensive. Um, and so there is always this, going to be this balance. You know, and, until we get to the point where you or I walk into our local mobile phone shop and say, I don't care what the phone looks like. I don't care what its capability is. I want the most secure device that you've got. And I by the way, I don't care how much it costs. Security is never going to be at the top of the, uh, the pile in, in terms of this. Nobody really wants to understand something like that. They want to understand what camera it's got, what size um, data storage it's got, you know, what it looks like, what color it might be. Those, those are the sorts of things that, that, that attract people. Um, and so the fact that we cannot retrofit security easily to a number of these devices does raise a security potentially a security issue. Um, and, I, and I think there is always the danger, uh, we know, when we talk about threats and we talk about security, um, of people coming away from it thinking, well, we're all doomed and uh, the end of the world is nigh. That isn't necessarily the case, but we do have to have, I think, a very much more um, responsible approach being adopted by manufacturers. And, you know, it was encouraging. I was personally encouraged to see the latest legislation coming out of California again that, that talks about, having to embed decent levels of security into IoT-type devices going forward. Now, that's not going to help for what's already out there, of course. And, and so it will take years to replace some of those devices that are already in the, in the market. That's if we can remember where they are and if we can find them. Um, and, and so there is something of a, a looming threat that is, that is out there. I think from the corporation standpoint, the important thing is to be able to understand where you've got these IoT devices. Uh, and if you can understand that, then you can look at what data is being passed through them uh, and you can make a risk assessment as to whether or not uh, you need to do something about it. At the personal level, I think again, you know, we all need to, to think a little about whether or not we absolutely do need our fridges to be communicating with whoever it might be to, to have that extra pint of milk delivered. Um, what would be the impact of that? For a lot of people, of course, it's not really going to matter. We're not really going to be that concerned about it. For others, particularly if we're home workers uh, and we have perhaps sensitive data that we take home, um, we need to look into it. And maybe we do, do need to create you know, secondary networks that uh, um, are insulated from, from some of the, the home IoT devices that we have across, uh, across our homes. So that isn't a problem, though, I mean, you said people should be more concerned, manufacturers should be more responsible. 
it would have to be top of mind for people. Government should get involved. But right now, kind of none of that's happening. And uh, so right now, at least we're on a path that we just continue to plug things in. I mean, is it getting better in any way, shape or form? Or is it like, no, every new device you plug in is just another vulnerability? I think that people are becoming more aware of it. I mean, I was talking to somebody not so long ago who was uh, citing an example of, you know, millennials in, in California was was where he was, uh, the example he was giving me. And he said, you know, if you look at the way that millennials are responding to technology, you know, when they have a phone on, the first things they'll do is they'll cover up the camera, you know, that, that kind of thing. So um, I think there is a general raising of the level of awareness of that, um, most of the devices that we use are, are well designed. They do make our lives easier. Uh, but our understanding of security and, and the implications has risen slightly. For me, though, that's a, something of a generational thing. It has to start in the schools. We have to be educating people very much more about what they can and cannot do. And so we are going to have something of a, 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 a sort of lag, if you like, in the market between the, the raising of awareness around security. I think as well over a period of time, um, that will then compel manufacturers of devices and so on to, to make sure that they are slightly more secure. Um, but for the time being, uh, we're just all going to have to um, accept that we are where we are. Uh, and if we're aware enough, we'll, we'll take uh, uh, control over some of that and, and make some appropriate changes to the way in which we're using devices. And, and those that aren't, perhaps, of course, you know, will be running the gauntlet of a potential attack. Um, fortunately for the majority of us, that, that uh, that still doesn't, despite the sorts of figures that we talk about in terms of the amount of data that's breached, lost, and so on, still doesn't affect uh, the majority of people. So the San Bernardino situation, uh, this phone was, after that shooting, the FBI and the United States seized the phone. They went to Apple app and, and said, you know, unlock it. We want to we want to see who this person was talking to and 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 whatnot. And Apple said no, and it's gone to court. And... I'm going to ask you two questions about that. Like, where do you, so that's still a debate society has, right? Like, it's, it's nothing we've kind of figured out norms around yet. Um, where do you think that's going to shake out in the U.S.? And where do you think, how do you think that will shake out in the rest of the world? Where do you think that will eventually land in 10 or 20 years from now? Yeah, I, th I think that the, 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 the Apple uh, approach and you know other manufacturers uh, would be tending, I think, in certain instances to take a something uh, a somewhat similar approach um, to to privacy to encryption. Is that perhaps we don't want to be able to crack that? Perhaps we don't want to be able to do it because that makes life a little easier for us. Um, th there is a huge debate around privacy that that uh, that we're having around the world today, and and this is just one example of that. I have no idea where it is going end, to end. What I can say is that we're all going to have to get used to having a lot less privacy than we have had in the past for a variety of different reasons. One of which is that we have a propensity to share intimate details on social media on the assumption that we're only sharing it with our friends or with people that uh, um, we trust. That, that patently isn't the case. We need to adapt to that. Or we simply need to say, well, actually, I don't, I don't care. Um, so we, we have this propensity to, to share. We have a propensity to produce masses of data um, on an ongoing minute-by-minute -minute basis across a number of different devices. 
at speeds that we would never have imagined, even a small number of years ago. That is making sure that the information that is being shared is much more readily and quickly available. Um, and so the, the old uh, ability, for instance, to, to, you know, to pull back something that you might have put up, you know, send an email, you could recall it, and that kind of thing, those days are fast gone as, as well. Um, because now when something is sent, it's sent and it's being picked up. And if it's salacious enough, it'll be tweeted around the world. So the whole issue of privacy is one that is undergoing a revolution. You have some regulations that are being uh, brought in by certain governments around responsibilities of organizations and so on. But that, that isn't really affecting the individual. And so I think that, that we're seeing a societal change in terms of how we view privacy and what we value. Um, and that is different across different generations. So it's going to be very, very interesting um, really to see how that all pans out o over the coming years, because we've got so many different things that are changing. We have so the legal requirements you, you just, you've just mentioned. Uh, we have social norms. Uh, we have personal views. A whole real mixture of all of that. I have no idea where it's going to end up. All I can say is that we're not going to have as much personally private information that we can withhold from, from sharing as we used to have in the past. And my own view is we're probably just going to have to get used to that. But that, that's kind of a choice, right? We could. I mean, you could encrypt your emails with public key encryption. You could uh, use a, a phone that, that has – I mean, it's, it, it sounds like – it seems like it's just not as important to people. Is that your read on it? I think so. Um, and, and I think that, uh, as I say, you know, this, this desire or, or at social media, I think, in, in particular, you know, the, the cult of celebrity, people share information that you wouldn't normally have considered appropriate five to 10 years ago. So society has changed very significantly. You're right. You could encrypt everything. You could go off grid. Um, and indeed, there are some people who, who deliberately have done that, you know, try to opt out, don't use social media, don't share that kind of information. But I, they're in the minority. We teach people, if you think about our university system, for instance, particularly here in the United States, if you, if you happen to be a student going to university, you have access into a, the university network across the United States. You can log on, you can share information. We, treat, we teach people to collaborate, to, to share different ideas. And, and there is a bleed from um, things that we might be sharing from, say, an academic nature, therefore, into the personal nature, because you always want to know who the individual is. You want to trust them and so on. Um, and, and there is a, uh, something that happens to us when we go onto social media that makes us think that we're only talking one-to-one -one or one-to a, a group of people that we actually know, that we actually trust. Uh, and that obviously isn't the case. Once you put stuff out there, it can be uh, retweeted and, and sent on. And so that, that's, a, that's a, a, a different psychological state that we enter, if you like, when we go into a social media environment. And we shouldn't forget that that, that kind of thing happens. And so it, it's all very well us saying, well, you know, you shouldn't be doing that, you shouldn't be posting that kind of thing. The reality is that when you go in there, you get sucked into it and you do and you see the latest tweet from, uh, you know, whoever it might be, your favorite celebrity. Um, and, and that's attractive. And you will also perhaps in, a, in your own small way try to emulate that because it's good practice. Um, and those are all the sorts of things, I think, that, uh, 
that, that really begin to, to affect our view of, of privacy and, and what it is that we're prepared to share. It's interesting because I had a guest on my uh, show who, who made a prediction that I'd never heard anywhere before. And, and he said that you never had a presumption of privacy for the longest time. You lived in a community of two or 300 people and everybody knew everybody's business, like the Victorian era. And he believes we're going to return to that same practice that the Victorians had, which is, you know, all the bad stuff about people because you saw it on social media, but you're polite enough to never mention it to them in person. So it's like you always knew it, but social norms were you didn't, like when you saw them, you didn't, you didn't mock them or mention it or anything. You're polite enough just to pretend like it didn't happen. Uh, I won't just put you on the spot, but don't you think it's kind of a, at least a possibility? I think it's a, um, I think it's a rather quaint and, and rather nice um, solution to the, to the problem that we've got. I, I think that the, the challenge with it is that today we live in a global village. And, you know, you will have people that you connect with from the United States, from Australia, from India, from Europe. Uh, and so your village is indeed, as I said, you know, completely global. And so to, to imagine that we're going to get to that state where the Victorians were able to do that in a relatively small environment and indeed very small social circles, um, I, I think is, as I say, it's, it's, it's rather nice. Um, I, I, I'm not so sure that we'll get there. I don't know where we will get. And so therefore that view is as valid as anybody else's. Frankly, I, I don't have a crystal ball on that one. Um, but it is, uh, it is relatively appealing, isn't it? So let's talk about, I mean, you used to have some amount of privacy. And let's talk about privacy from your own government for a moment. You used to have some amount of privacy because there are just so many people. You can't follow everybody. You can't listen to every phone conversation. But, of course, AI can take every phone conversation and transcribe it, and then it can data mine all of that. Um, <clears throat> AI is as good at reading lips now as a person, so every camera, even without audio, can record what everybody's saying within at least facing them, um, and, and so forth. The, 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 the device that transmits your location in your phone uh, every word you type in an email, it all can be mined with the same tools we're using for, for, for very noble purposes to, to find cures to diseases and all of the rest. So is there any, and, and let's talk just first about a country like uh, the UK or the United States where you have, you know, transparent, more transparency, rule of law and the rest. In that kind of a, a society, should you have a presumption that nothing is listening to what you're saying? Like by law, should you have that presumption? Or should we just take for granted that everything's going into a database somewhere to be studied for some purpose uh, for what is ostensibly a public good or a public purpose? Yeah, I, I think that, that you know there are both moral, there are ethical, a whole range of different issues, and all wrapped up in in that. Um, artificial intelligence is still in its infancy. It, it, it does have the potential to provide a whole range of 
of uh, potential benefits. I mean, I always view when people ask me what artificial, how I define artificial intelligence. It, for me, it's about outsourcing. You're outsourcing to machines, to computers. You know, the ability to um, draw conclusions from vast amounts of, uh, of data or to automate at, at scale. What we're able to do in most instances today, of course, is, is actual machine learning, where we're feeding in more and more information to the machines, where they're working through algorithms and, and so on. And that's been uh, used very, very effectively in terms of you know, assessing my buying pattern, what it is that I'm likely to do in my response to advertising and, and, and so on. And as a, a professional marketer, you know, I, I, I get very excited about that because it allows me to understand my customer far, far better. And then you get into, well, hang on a minute, are we now going to monitor, because we do have the capability, are we now going to monitor everything that is done? And traditionally, there will then be the argument of national security that is that is put forward, you know, terrorism and, and, and so on. If you look at certain nations, however, that, that we, you know, we shouldn't underestimate the cost associated with putting some of these systems in place and indeed the um, ability to act on that kind of information within very short order. This is where, for me, AI does potentially have some, some very valuable uses going forward, but it's not there yet. And so we have to continue, I think, to develop it in a, a long track, if for no other reason than for national security, because we do live in an increasingly dangerous world. And, and we do have to, I think, rely on uh, our governments to, to protect us, the citizen. And I think that does mean that we have to give up some of that freedom of operation. But there is a trust element in that. And I don't think in certain countries that we have recovered still from the perception of an abuse of trust in the way in which governments have collected information, the way that perhaps it's been, it's been used. And so I think that we need to move to an environment with artificial intelligence where there is a higher degree of transparency, there is a higher degree of explanation to try to rebuild some of the trust that should exist between government and citizen to allow some of these things to happen. Um, I think that AI does have significant benefit uh, to deliver in that particular area, but I think we need to get it right. And I don't think we're there necessarily yet. Uh, and we won't be until we have a much more transparent environment where we understand what information is being collected and indeed why, you know, does, an organization need to listen to every phone conversation that I'm having? Probably not. Do I really care if they do? Probably not either, frankly, um, because I've, you know, I've got nothing to worry about. That's one of the arguments that people put forward. If you've got nothing to worry about, why would you object? Well, you would object because potentially things go wrong. And the challenge is that we still trust and believe in technology. And we still believe that machines don't make mistakes. And the reality is that they do. And so we have to have some means of balancing that out. And that goes back to my point about transparency and trust and recourse that, that we have as individuals uh, should, things, uh, should things go wrong. What, what are the simplest things that the average person listening to this should do? You know, simple things we can do that will dramatically, hopefully, increase our security. What's your advice when you're sitting next to somebody on the plane and they say, what should I do differently? Yeah. 
I, I think there are a number of, of, of fairly basic things that, that, that we can do that, that are standard hygiene things. You know, like you get up in the morning, you clean your teeth. It's, it, for most people, that's, that's almost, you don't think about it. It's just something that you do. So in, in that sort of category, what, what should you be doing? Well, of course, you, you, sh you have to look at the whole sort of password protection around devices that, that you're using. Um, whether you use a biometric or whether you use uh, a you know, very complex password. If you're using a password that you've created, then do make sure that you've got a number of different uh, letters and numbers and symbols in it. Um, but make sure that it's something that you can remember. I, I'm not going to tell you that you need to have a different password for every system. You're, you're not going to be able to do that. That's farcical. You'll never remember it. So what will you do? You'll write it all down and then um, you know, you'll you'll lose it. Um, so that, that isn't going to, to make sense. One of the other things that you need to be, and it's interesting that you mentioned on a plane, um, you need to be very much more aware. I travel a, a, a lot, as you, as you probably know. I was on an airplane just a few days ago, sitting behind somebody who in front of me, once we had just touched down, decided they were going to check their bank account. Without consciously having to look, I was able to get the details of their bank account, their name, their bank account number, their sort code, and a full readout on exactly what transactions they had uh, undertaken on that particular account over the last week. They then flipped to another account. So now I've got two accounts with the information. Had I wanted to, I could very easily have taken a picture of that, and I could have done something with it. So it's, that's about awareness. Understand that maybe it isn't appropriate for you to be looking at what I would term anyway to be relatively sensitive information in a public environment where people might, you know, just just be able to shoulder surf and uh, uh, and take advantage of you. I, I think the, I think the other thing that I would say is do be aware again if you are accessing sensitive applications of how you're doing it. So it's very convenient for us, for instance, we're sitting in a coffee shop, we're sitting at the airport to use the public Wi-Fi. Probably not a good idea to be accessing your bank account details in that instance. Uh, a lot of uh, data is stolen in those environments. If you're just accessing you know, simple um, emails or, or perhaps you're just uh, web surfing, well, fine. Um, but, but just think it through. Think, you know, would I want whatever it is I'm, I'm accessing to fall into the wrong hands? And if the answer is no, don't do it. So I think a lot of it is just you know, stop and think. And finally, phishing. We are seeing an increase in phishing. If you see an email that looks too good to be true, it probably is. If it's coming from somebody even that you recognize from a name or an address point of view, just think whether or not that makes sense. I had one through just the other day from somebody that I know uh, very well who uh, allegedly was sending me uh, a messenger message. Now, I don't use Facebook Messenger, uh, and so it's very unlikely that... Uh, that it would actually be a messenger message from this individual because they know that I don't use it. Um, so it's just little things like that, I suppose, raising your awareness and just looking twice before you cross the road. Do you remember that movie Spaceballs and uh, they're trying to get the planetary, the, the password to the planetary defense shield and they, they kidnap the president's daughter and so he reveals that it's four, three, two, one. And they're like, that's it, really? That's what people use on their luggage. Um, <laughs> I noticed that that password, or maybe it was one, two, three, four, whatever it was, that password is still in the top 10 list of passwords people use. Yeah. Uh, 
So I'd like to close. Tell us a little bit about your company and what do people call upon you for and uh, what what do you do like on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, the, the Information Security Forum is a uh, nearly 30-year-old company now. Uh, we're a not-for-profit. We're headquartered in the UK. Uh, we offer a, a range of services to members where members are organizations. So typically, they are multinational organizations from the Forbes and the Fortune. We provide them with research with uh, cybersecurity tools, with access to our analysts and a small, very select range of consultancy services that allow them to adopt policies, processes, procedures that make them safer online, that improve their cyber profiling, their cyber security. Um, And we we work collaboratively with uh, very many of the standards agencies. We work with NIST here in the United States, ISO, for instance, uh, and and others, um, providing specialist input into uh, some of the standards that are being produced and, and just, you know, providing our opinions in those particular areas that are taken from from working with organizations around the world uh, and with some of the smartest individuals that uh, that there are in, in cyber. So we, we're in a very fortunate position because we do have that ability to work with very clever people who are, you know, really at the forefront of, of uh, what cyber is all about and then to work collaboratively with them in terms of implementing cyber resilience programs and and ways in which they can improve their security posture, not just for their own benefit, but also in a lot of cases for the benefit of their customers and their, and their users. So that's the, that's the ISF. Um, What do I do on a regular basis? I I do things like this. I, I also spend quite a bit of my time meeting as you would expect with uh, our members, with potential members, um, with third parties, um, I'm pretty active on the on the conference um, front as well, uh, talking about the sorts of things that we've just been covering. Um, but also, I think trying to raise a level of awareness of security um, and provide some some insights that hopefully organisations and individuals will find interesting. That again, help them to just pause and think about how they're using technology and how they might become safer online. I think that's the that's the essence of it. All right. Well, I think it's a great place to leave it. I want to thank you for your uh, fascinating hour talking about so many different topics. Oh, it's a pleasure, Byron. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please check out the other ones. And in addition, Byron Reese hosts another podcast about AI called the AI Minute. Every day, it's a minute or two of daily reflections about AI. It's available wherever you find your podcast of choice. And in addition, it's an Alexa skill. So it can be part of your flash briefing every day if you own an Alexa device.